meditation and uh, establish that immediately as one of our practices so that you can use it all through the course at different times in your individual practice. As you know, I think you do, there are only two directions in meditation, calm and insight. Methods galore, directions too. Both have to be established in order to have benefit from meditation, but particularly in order to have a different kind of view about the world and oneself which eventually leads to complete peacefulness so calm and insight are our two directions and in that calm is a means insight is a goal we must never be content with just calm because that too is impermanent And we mustn't fool ourselves to believe that we can gain the depth of insight if we don't have a depth of mind that becomes calm. Naturally, we can gain some insights. An intelligent mind can gain insight from many things, but the real depth comes from a calm mind. So both are necessary. Now, in the meditation practice, as we start on the breath and try to stay on it, we're going towards calm. Every time we label a thought, we go towards insight, trying to find out our thought patterns, trying to find out what is disturbing us if it's the same thought over and over again we may have to investigate it if we see how impermanent the breath is we go towards inside if we actually remain on the breath it's calm now contemplation is strictly for insight and therefore we need to balance our practice for calm Obviously, we're trying to stay on the breath to become calm. Balance it with the contemplative process for insight. Now, contemplation for insight has a specific meaning in the Buddhist teaching. The word insight, which, by the way, in Pali is vipassana, and vipassana is not a method, it's a result that we all hope for, and work for insight means understanding one of the three characteristics of the universe in depth whichever way we manage that that's a method but real insight means that and the three characteristics of the universe anicca dukkanata impermanence unsatisfactoriness and corelessness or substancelessness. Now the word dukkha, second one, 
is the one I might continue to use as in Pali, Dukkha, because it has a connotation which is extremely far-reaching, and in order to say that in English, it takes at least six words for two syllables. It means pain, grief, and lamentation, tragedy, worry, and fear, dislike, unhappiness, lack of peace, pain, everything that we don't like, and altogether the unsatisfactoriness of existence, not human existence only, existence as as such. So the word dukkha is all-embracing and is the first noble truth of the Buddha's teaching and because of that, of the greatest importance. So I like to use the word dukkha in its Pali form so I don't have to go through saying pain, grief and lamentation, tragedy, hurt, fear, worry, problems, just dukkha. And dukkha is known to everyone, but we often have a wrong aspect of it in mind, but we'll discuss that later. Anicca is impermanence, and that's easily translated, so there's no reason to use it in Pali, we just use the word impermanence. Corelessness, substancelessness, is a translation of the Pali word anatta. And again, we're faced with a translation which is not totally satisfactory. But yet, it does say enough. Anatta, literally translated, means non-self. Atta is self. An is the syllable just like in English, un, un, in Pali, an, non, same thing, non-self. But with the word non-self, we usually have difficulties. And since all we have for this communication in order to gain insight are words, we have to be careful with the words. And instead of saying non-self, which is a literal translation and which is usually used in books and treatises, I'm going to use the word corelessness, without a core. And it's more than just no self, but that's what it hinges upon. So inside in, the Buddha's teaching means inside into one of the three. And having gained insight into one of the three, we have gained insight into all three, because they're totally interwoven. All end in the third one, in the corelessness, substancelessness. Corelessness sounds better, not quite as long. So if we do contemplation, we do that with one of those three in mind. And everyone can pick the one of the three which they prefer. An analytical mind, one which likes to analyze and debate with itself, usually veers automatically towards corelessness and tries to usually prove otherwise. Very difficult to do, but most people who are analytically inclined will try that. That's fine. Buddha had nothing against that. It was 
it's a way of establishing an an inner understanding of what one isn't yet aware of. People who have quite a bit of concentration, are strongly concentrated, very often veer towards dukkha because strong concentration produces the opposite. It produces sukha, pleasure. And in order to gain insight, we have to look at dukkha. And those who have a lot of confidence in the Buddha's teaching usually veer towards impermanence. That is the easiest one because it's very difficult to argue about it. It's also difficult to disbelieve it. But that isn't enough. Not arguing about it or not disbelieving it is not enough because one can also do that out of a lazy mind sometimes. People don't want to make a big argument. Well, you know, don't let's discuss it so much. It's all right already. But that isn't good enough. And it can also happen out of politeness. Oh, yeah, well, the Buddha said so. It's okay. That's not enough either. It has to be an inner experience. Without that inner experience of impermanence, it's meaningless. That the Buddha said so, it's fine. But that is because one has this kind of confidence, one just accepts it, but one doesn't investigate it. A lazy mind is usually uh, prone to do that. So, because impermanence is the one that we can so clearly see in us constantly, it is the one that is the first Impermanent is something we can see in us constantly. All we have to do is look at the breath. I mentioned that already. Now, dukkha is something that, unless we are strongly uh, concentrated, some people are not that uh, keen to look at it because they figure they've got enough of it already. Why look at it again? And um, the corelessness is the most difficult one. So we certainly will start with the impermanence as a con- contemplation subject. And from there, you can branch out during your individual meditation times to anything you want to contemplate. It can be a personal problem. But always remember those three are the characteristics of all that exists. Use the personal problem. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe it's a personal problem of having an unkind neighbor. It really doesn't matter. But always use one of the three characteristics as the entry into seeing the problem in its right perspective. Now, there's one thing we should, I should say about Dukkha. I said already that it is the first noble truth. The Buddha said that the first noble truth 
is the noble truth of Dukkha, which means that there is unsatisfactoriness in all existence. And then he gives a second noble truth. And that second noble truth, he said there's only one cause for Dukkha. One cause only. Now that makes it nice and simple, doesn't it? We don't have to look far. However, it doesn't make it easy. It's just simple. That's one cause. And that's craving, which means, translated into our everyday experience, that we don't like the way things are. We want them differently. We either want to have something we haven't got, or we want to get rid of something we have got. There's no other cause for dukkha. Now that can be an approach for a personal problem. The impermanent aspect, which we're going to use now as a contemplation, has as its approach the fact that we don't see it because of continuity. I already mentioned that. Our breath keeps coming, so we think we are constantly alive, which is also an illusion. We're dying every moment and coming back together and dying again. Now that is an extremely um, pinpointed approach, but impermanence can be used as an approach to any kind of inquiry to see whether we can find anything permanent within ourselves. And if there is any kind of problem, we will see immediately that we ourselves are so impermanent that obviously what we think of as a problem this minute may not be a problem at all tomorrow because something entirely different has arisen. If we make, if we uh, think that this problem is very permanent, it's only because it keeps continuing to arise in the mind. We don't notice that the mind is constantly changing. And we allow it to continually arise again and again and again. Again, continuity overshadowing the fact of impermanence, that the mind keeps coming together and falling apart. These are all ways and means of gaining insight, and impermanence has a very practical aspect, which we're doing the contemplation right now. And anybody who's analytical and would like to investigate corelessness, substancelessness, will have to go through impermanence, because impermanence is the cause and reason for the fact that there is nothing that has an absolute solidity in it. This kind of investigation for the third one is better done when the meditation has already uh, flourished into a very calm states because this is a difficult subject and the usual approach to it on a superficial level by people who do not... Um, have not been able to gain a deeper understanding of it yet, usually think or say, yeah, well, if I'm not there, if I'm not here, what am I trying so hard for, to meditate? Well, that kind of approach doesn't help us at all, so it's better to leave that third one alone until the mind has become more concentrated, where it is far more pinpointed and can go into deeper depth. 
as you know, if you have a tool which has a point on it, it can cut through. If you have a tool which has just a broad side to it, it won't cut through. It tries to push through with little result. So a one-pointed mind is what's necessary for that. Contemplation can be used on anything. It doesn't matter what it is. But if those three aspects, or one of the three, has to be kept in mind, as it the entry into seeing it in its reality, so that the problem, while it may be a problem, certainly has no dukkha attached to it. So we use either impermanence or what do I want that I haven't got or what have I got that I don't want. And then we'll see quite clearly where all this comes from and how we can go about letting go of it. Contemplation differs from meditation in that it does not approach calm but insight by keeping one subject in mind whereas meditation wants a meditation subject to, for the mind to become pinpointed. Here we use a subject that has universal truth in it and try to relate it to ourselves to see whether in the macrocosm of existence this microcosm has exactly the same qualities so that we can then refer back to ourselves so that we can see ourselves in the relationship of the whole and the whole in the relationship to ourselves. In other words, we take a whole subject, one whole subject, which has universal truth in it and related to ourselves. It's not a matter of being pinpointedly quiet in the mind. It's a matter of keeping on that subject, which also prevents discursive thinking. Discursive thinking means that we go from one subject to the next. Like hearing a sound, and then the mind says, ah, oh, that's a truck. I wonder why they don't have a back entrance to these trucks. I've been in a much better place for meditation. Where was that? Oh, yes, that was three years ago. It must have been five. Why didn't I continue my meditation? I'm always so tired. I think I should see the doctor. Now, we heard a truck and we're already at the doctor's. That's discursive thinking. But contemplation is keeping one subject in mind and relating it to oneself. The mind is not to be negated. What is negated is discursiveness in the mind, that's all, in meditation and in contemplation. The mind is the greatest jewel we have, and all we have to do is treat it correctly and look after it in a good way and then it will give us great benefit. So now what we're going to do, we're going to do this contemplation together. Most of you have already done it with me. We'll do it in the same way. I will say the uh, sentence, and then I'll like you to repeat it after me so it's easier to remember, and then I'll say something about it which will help you to contemplate it. 
if you have other, other ideas from mine, better ideas, please use them. Whatever comes to mind to use, I'm only giving you some suggestions how to contemplate that particular subject, that's all. Everything that you can figure out about it will be even more valuable because it's your own. If you use mine, that's fine too. You can make it your own by seeing it clearly. All right, in order to get started, we'll put the attention on the breath for a moment. And now, please repeat after me. I'm of the nature to decay. I'm of the nature to decay. I have not got beyond decay. I have not got beyond decay. Now the first thing we have to do is to look to see whether this is a true statement. And when we see that it is, then the next step is to investigate whether we're actually remembering that or whether there is um, a wish to forget about it. When we're actually remembering it, do we resist it and reject it? Would it rather not have it happen? And do we therefore experience some dukkha about it? Or do we flow with it and recognize it as a law of nature so that we can embed ourselves into that law of nature which is all around us in all natural aspects, even those that are man-made, and the law of nature which we ourselves are also subject to. Do we look at it that way? And if we don't, can we now begin to? I'm of the nature to be diseased. I'm of the nature to be diseased. I have not got beyond disease. I have not got beyond disease. Now again we need to inquire whether this is true. The word dis-ease 
means non-ease and refers to the mental and the physical. And seeing it as a statement which is universal, it may also take away from us that feeling of guilt or the feeling that we ourselves are at fault if there is dis-ease. But the Buddha claimed it as a law of nature. So let us have a look inside and see how do we look upon dis-ease and are we resisting and rejecting it? Are we identifying with it? What does it tell us about the body, for instance, when it is diseased? Do we have any control over it? Is it really mine? We have to have a look at our own reactions and responses to this law of nature. I'm of the nature to die. I am of the nature to die. I have not got beyond death. I have not got beyond death. Now obviously we don't have to inquire whether this is true or not, but what we do have to inquire into is whether we remember this in our daily life, in our daily activity and whether we remember it with dislike or with a feeling of understanding that there are only certain priorities and others are only illusion. And another thing we need to inquire into is the fact whether we are ready for it because it may come to any one of us at any time. And if we're not ready for it, why not?
what are we hanging on to too much so that we're not ready? All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. All that is mine, dear and delightful, will change and vanish. Here we have to inquire whether this has been true in the past of anything that we have called mine and that we found delightful either people, experiences, sensations,
material belongings, anything that came through the senses, such as seeing something beautiful or hearing it, tasting it, touching it, anything at all that we've called mine, that we found very pleasant, very happy with, whether that has changed or has vanished altogether. Some of our contacts may have been lost and can't be resurrected even in memory. They have changed the memory, but some of the things we actually owned and wanted, some of the people that were around us, actually no longer, no longer there. So we need to look at that and then look at all that which we call mine now and find delightful. Can we let go? I am the owner of my karma. Now this has to be looked at in this way that if we take responsibility for our own lives, we have to take responsibility for everything that happens in it. And that means we own the results of our own thought speech and action. And when we do own up to that, we will recognize the fact that we have to be careful.
I am heir to my karma. Here we acknowledge the fact that our own inheritance is what we manufacture ourselves. If we want to have a valuable inheritance in our life of experience and situation, of the whole life situation, we are the ones that actually get that together. The law of cause and effect is here addressed as it refers to ourselves and our own lives. I am born of my karma. I am born of my karma. This addresses the fact that the situation we are born into is a karmic effect. And wherever we find ourselves, this is exactly the level where we were ready to get to. It doesn't mean that we are stuck there but it means that our birth in itself is a result of karmic happenings I am related to my karma. I am related to my karma. Now this has to be looked at in this way. It's the closest relationship that we can ever have. It's as close to us as our own skin. And if that's a relationship we really need to come to terms with. Because we could also say, I am my karma. From moment to moment, karma is being made by us through our decision. The primary way of making karma is of course in the mind. It always then relates to speech and action, but it's the mind itself that is the instigator. I live supported by my karma. I live supported by my karma. 
we actually may be able through contemplation to see a few connections between cause and effect between the things we may have done in this life and the effects they have had and how they support our life situation or some of them fail to do so if we see just one or two connections it can be very helpful in the determination to continue towards the good Whatever karma I shall make, that I shall inherit. That brings us to the present moment where we, if we have an understanding of cause and effect, where we make the determination to have only good causes so that we get good effects, that we have a valuable inheritance through our own efforts. I'm going to use one of the discourses of the Buddha for the framework of the teaching during this course. This particular sutta is not only very well known and important, but my teacher has said that if we know nothing else except that one sutta, that would be enough. If we follow all its instructions. 
Knowing the Sutta is not quite enough, but it's certainly a good start. It's called the Samana Palla Sutta. Now Sutta, the word Sutta means discourse. Literally translated, it means thread. It is the thread on which the jewels of the Buddha's words are threaded. But of course we translate it as discourse and not as thread. Samana is a renunciate of any kind of any order not necessarily a Buddhist. A Samana is a monk or one should say someone who has embarked upon the spiritual life and has because of that renounced worldly affairs completely or to a certain extent. And the word Pala, it's P-H-A-L-A, means fruit. So it is translated, the sutta is translated as the fruit of recluseship. We could say, if we want to make it a little more simple, which I always like to do, we could say the fruit of the spiritual life. And not only does it talk about that, but it also gives like practically all of the longer discourses of the Buddha, it gives a historical background and a um, almost visual explanation of what happened in the days of the Buddha, how it all worked, how people were living at that time, and what was concerning them. And we will see that what concerned them is the same thing that concerned us, except they used elephants instead of cars. The rest is all one and the same. And they had funny names according to our social customs, but that's only because they spoke a different language. But other than that, it's exactly what bothers us, what bothered them. And the answers the Buddha gave in his lifetime to those people that addressed him are the same answers that can be of use to us. The Sutta starts out with saying that the Buddha was staying near Rajagaha in Jivaka Kumara Bachu's mango grove. Now, Jivaka Kumara Bachu is usually called just Jivaka. And Jivaka was a, the personal physician to the Buddha. He was an orphan and had been found as a baby abandoned and has been brought up, was brought up by a prince and therefore he got that second name which means being brought up by a prince or in the palace, yes, being brought up by a prince. And the name they gave him was Jivaka. And when he got older, he studied medicine and became, apparently, a very good doctor because he was then the Buddha's personal physician and also looked after all the Buddha's uh, disciples, all the monks that were in the Buddha's dispensation. So he had lots to do because in those days there were thousands of monks and uh, lots of um, sicknesses, of course, because of the fact that 
we, there weren't so many hygienic uh, arrangements as we have today. However, even in that time, two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha gave exact instructions on how to look after personal hygiene to his monks and nuns, not to the lay people. He didn't have any jurisdiction over them. So Jivaka was a busy uh, physician and also completely devoted to the Buddha. And therefore, he bought a mango grove so that the Buddha would have a nice place for a monastery where he and the monks could be in peace and quiet and have a, a lovely situation. Now this was near Rajagaha. Rajagaha was the place where Jivaka lived and Rajagaha was a busy town, still is. And um, so he went outside of the town to find this mango grove. And we see here, as we see in, um, at several other occasions, that the monastery retains the name of the donor. So it is called Jivaka's Mango Grove because it is the donor of that monastery. So it, the story starts out with saying that the Buddha was staying there with 1250 monks. Gives the exact number. Whether that's really so or not, who knows. But anyway, that's what it says, 1250 monks. And then the story turns over to the palace. The palace of King Ayatasattu. Now, Ayatasattu was, is famous in the Buddhist uh, dispensation because he had a very peculiar and very particularly terrible life. And it's very important to know about that at this point because it makes sense of the following questions that he asks and the disquiet and the uh, dissatisfaction that this king is um, experiencing. King Ajatasattu was the son of King Bimbisara and he murdered his father. Now, of course, this is um, a, at any time a terrible happening, but the way it is described is that it was, um, even as a prince, as a young prince, he tried to kill his father. And the ministers wanted to punish the prince, but the king didn't allow that, the father didn't allow it. And he asked the son, why do you want to kill me? And the son said, I want your kingdom. So the king gave it to him. He said, here, have it. It's all right. So he took it. But he still didn't want his father around. He still had this inner feeling of hate towards the father, although the father had loved him and cared for him like a father ordinarily would and had even given him the whole kingdom. And as he now was the king, the son was the king, and had complete jurisdiction, he ordered the father to be incarcerated in a tower. And there he was aiming to starve him to death. But of course the queen came to visit and brought him food. Well, they found that out. And then the queen was not allowed to take anything. And then the story says she smeared her body with oil and um, butter so that the king could have that. And then that was found out. Anyway, in the end, it was so that he actually did die. 
because there was no way anymore to feed him. The queen was um, obstructed completely. And it so happened that he died on the same day that a son was born to this new king Ajatasattu. And as the son was born, he realized the love that a father has for a son and wanted to order his father released, but the father was already dead. It had happened almost simultaneously that the father died and the son was, the little son was born. So now, of course, after having had this realization, this king had great remorse. King Ajatasattu was full of remorse and regret. And actually, what it tells us is not necessarily just patricide, because that is not that common, but it shows us that their deeds are followed by regret, which is the immediate karma resultant that we can get. Remorse and regret. So apparently, from the rest of the story, we find out that he went around to different spiritual masters who were quite plentiful in those days. We hear about six of them that are named by name. One of them was the founder of the Jain sect. But there were many more. And all teaching their own doctrine. Well, I don't think much has changed, has it? There are more than six around, I'm sure. In those days, I'm sure there were more than six also, but these six are named. So what's happening that same evening now is that this King Ajatasattu is sitting on the veranda, the terrace of his palace, and it's a beautiful moonlit night, and he says to his ministers who are sitting around him that it's such a beautiful moonlit night and do they know of any Brahmin or recluse who could teach him something that would give him peace of mind? Well, obviously he's quite aware of the fact that he doesn't have peace of mind. Now most people don't have peace of mind but equally so most people don't know it. But this one knows because he has this remorse of doing the bad, the really terribly bad deed. So the ministers are suggesting different names, six different names. And each one that they suggest, he doesn't say anything, the king. The reason for that being that he's already seen that one and already had been dissatisfied. So there's no use for him to go and see that one again. But he didn't tell that to the ministers. He didn't like to um, make a <coughs> statement of that sort because obviously the minister who was suggesting that particular teacher thought of that the teacher was a very good one. Otherwise he wouldn't have suggested it. So he didn't like to start an argument about it. But he just didn't say anything. And finally, Jivaka said, why don't you go and see the Buddha? And Ajatasattu, of course, had heard of him, but he hadn't talked to him yet. And he also knew that his father had been a great follower of the Buddha and had um, been devoted to the Buddha. The Buddha and his father were contemporaries. They were the same age. And this King Bimbisara had been um, devoted to the Buddha for many, many years.
And because of that, because of course Ajatasattu knew that the father had been a friend of the Buddha, he had been not to see him because he was afraid the Buddha was going to start berating him immediately for his terrible deed that he'd done. But now, having seen all the other masters that were in the area, there was nothing left. And so he asked this Jivaka, he said, well, do you think that uh, he knows something? And Jivaka said, yes, he has a very good reputation. He has lots of disciples and has a very good reputation. So Ajatasattu said, and where is he? And he said, oh, he's very near here. He's in the mango grove that I purchased, and that's right outside of Rajagaha. So Ajatasattu said, all right, we'll go there. We'll go there right this evening, now. So get the elephants ready. So the story says that 500 female elephants were got ready, and one bull elephant. And he put 500 of his concubines or lady servants or dancers, whatever they were, on the 500 um, female elephants, and he himself got onto the bull elephant. So it must have been quite a spectacle. 501 uh, decorated elephants. And then the servants uh, of the palace were instructed to carry um, torches, which in those days would have been not our battery torches, but the torches have coconut oil in them. They're still being used in Sri Lanka at occasions of um, religious festivals. Uh, they have, they're on a stick and they have a coconut oil on top, and then there's a flame going from the coconut oil. So there were 500 of those too. So there was quite a uh, procession going out of Rajagaha to the mango grove. And as they got near the mango grove, Ajatasattu got fearful, got scared, was full of terror. And he turned around to Jivaka and he said, Are you delivering me to an enemy? Have you taken me into some sort of um, um, place where I'm going to be overrun by an enemy. And Jivaka said, why? Why do you say that? He said, you, you told me there was a Buddha here with 1250 monks, but not a sound can be heard. So I'm afraid they're hiding, some enemy is hiding to kill us. And Jivaka said, don't worry about this. They're always very quiet. So, I guarantee there's no enemy here. So, Ajatasattu apparently had confidence in Jivaka and ordered uh, everybody to uh, descend from the elephants and walk on foot the rest of the way. The um, place can still be seen today. I've actually been there. And there's a little sign there which says, this is as far as Ajatasattu went on his elephants. And it's quite so, because the rest is very narrow. No elephant could possibly get through there. So, like a narrow little pathway, which goes uphill a bit. And uh, whether this is actually the spot, but one can imagine that this is so. So then they walked on foot the rest of the way. And as they got there, it was true what Jivaka had said. 
that there was the Buddha sitting with 1250 monks totally silent, not sneezing, not coughing, not shifting, not uh, squabbling, nothing. Now that alone already made quite an impression, of course, because noise is something we make instinctively, impulsively, and we are um, often unaware of what we do. But to be totally silent and have that many to be totally silent, obviously sitting in meditation and not doing, not having any um, restlessness was very impressive. So then Ajatasattu asked uh, Jivaka which one was the Buddha because they were of course all dressed alike and all had their hair shaved off. So it was pointed out to him that the Buddha was sitting against the pillar and that he was the one. So then Ajatasati went up to him and sat down near him. It doesn't say that he prostrated. Now which means that he was not a disciple of the Buddha. If one is a disciple of the Buddha, particularly in those days and particularly of today in a Buddhist country, one would prostrate to him as a sign of respect. But if one is not a disciple, one just comes up and probably puts the hands in Anjali and sits down near there. So he sat down. And of course, the Buddha knew that this was King Ajatasattu because, I mean, after all, he was living in the kingdom of him and uh, greeted him uh, very friendly and asked him why he had come. And King Ajatasattu said that he would like to ask him a question. And this is the question that goes as a reference to this whole discourse. King Ajatasattu said, you know, we have many people in this kingdom who have abilities, technical skills, who have good livelihoods. And he mentions a whole uh, list of livelihoods that were common in those days, and practically none of them are now even known about. Some of them are, potters and weavers are still known, they were livelihoods, and um, archers, and farmers, and, uh, but a lot of things that are mentioned as livelihoods, we wouldn't even know that people could make a living like that or what they were even doing. So it was a very agricultural society, and of course totally, totally without technology. Everything was done by hand. And he mentions all the different things that one could make a living with. And he says, now these people have an immediate result from their ability, from their effort. They make daily effort and they have an immediate result. The result uh, it, it can be seen. He says, we, they have, first of all, they make a livelihood for themselves. Secondly, they are able to provide for their families. They, may ev they are able to provide for, if they have servants or employees, they can provide for them. They are also able to give gifts to be generous. And because of that, they make good karma, they make merit, and hopefully there will be a result of that. But what is the result of a recluse's life? In other words, what does one get out of meditation? And most people who become meditators in this day and age are asked at some stage by their relatives or friends now what do you think you're going to get out of sitting there and watching the breath at the tip of your nose 
Why don't you do something really useful? In fact, I heard that statement that one mother of a meditator said to another mother of a meditator when they were talking about their children. Mother said, well, you know, it's better than doing nothing at all, isn't it? So, it's nothing uncommon to have that question in mind. Only Ajatasattu um, worded it differently. He named all the different livelihoods. And he said, so what, what, can you, what is a visible result of being a recluse? What is a visible result of a spiritual life? Let's put it that way. So the Buddha said to him, let me ask you a question first. Now the Buddha often did that. He had four ways of answering questions. One was either yes or no, if that was applicable. One was giving a detailed answer, explaining. One was nothing, saying nothing, because the question was so um, wrongly put that it wasn't applicable to answer. And the fourth way was by asking a counter question. These are the four ways that he used to answer questions. And it's also interesting maybe to know that many of the discourses of the Buddha which have been handed down to us are answers to questions, like this one. So he's asking him a counter question. And he says to him, have you asked other spiritual teachers? And of course we know already that he had. He had asked these other six. So King Ajahnasattu said, yes, I have. I have asked others. So Buddha said, what did they tell you? Now that's important for the Buddha also to ask him, first of all, to get it quite clear in the mind of the questioner what answers he already has that obviously are not satisfying so that he comes to ask again. Or is he only asking again to test the Buddha whether he's going to say the same thing? Or is he honestly and sincerely dissatisfied and wants to get a proper answer. So that helps the questioner to clarify that in his own mind and it certainly helps the Buddha to know where the questioner is at. So Ajatasattu is sincere and he says, yes, I have asked others and the answers which I got were like this. He says, the first one that I asked, he told me, when I asked him what are the fruits of a spiritual life, he's told me that it doesn't matter what one does, whether good or evil deeds, there is no resultant. It doesn't matter whether one actually breaks any of the precepts, killing, stealing, lying. It doesn't matter whether one has self-discipline and tries to lead a good life. Nothing matters there is no result of one's actions. So obviously, King Ajatatu says to the Buddha, that wasn't what I asked him. He answered me as if I had asked him about a mango and he's explaining a breadfruit to me. Or if I had asked him about a breadfruit and he's explaining a mango to me. I hadn't asked him that at all. So naturally, he said, I was dissatisfied. So I went to the second one. Now the second one, I asked him exactly the same question, he says. And what he answered was this. He said, everything is destiny. 
doesn't matter what one does. The purification of one's being comes through going through samsara. And this is one of the misconceptions which is very strong in this day and age. In fact, it was mentioned to me yesterday. Namely, he gave a simile this other teacher. He said, it's like a ball of string. And you roll out that ball of string and eventually it comes to an end. And that's when your whole samsaric journey, the journey of birth and death and rebirth, comes to an end. Doesn't matter what you've done in the meantime. Now that's a very common misconception that everyone is going to be enlightened one day. This is what that means. Doesn't matter what you do meanwhile. You can live a life where you break all the precepts, where you, do, where you never consider doing anything good, and yet you're going to come to an end. So, again, Ayata Sadhu said, you know, I didn't ask him about that. That's not what I wanted to know. He told me that. But actually, it's totally irrelevant. And not only that, in King Ayata Sadhu's case, he knew already that this wasn't true. Because he had done a very bad deed and he had got the result, namely lack of peace in the mind, constant regret and remorse. So it was totally clear to him that it did matter whether you did good or evil actions. The first answer was clear to him that was wrong because this regret and remorse would not have occurred in him if he hadn't done the bad deed. So he knew from his own experience that this was a wrong answer. And the same for the second one, where the teacher said, well, it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to come to the end. Well, it was maybe a hopeful thing for him, but he already knew it did matter what you did. Because even this one life that he was leading now was not a happy one. He had every wealth that was possible. He had every luxury. This was a very rich kingdom. And he could have everything he wanted. He was very powerful. And yet he was unhappy, and quite markedly unhappy. So he knew already that all these irrelevant answers were not true. So again, he, and then he said to the Buddha, quite nice actually, he said to him, you know, he said, I wasn't satisfied. In fact, I couldn't do anything with the answer, but I left it open. I neither believed it nor disbelieved it. And I didn't say anything, but I also didn't become a follower of that teacher. I just didn't say anything. I thanked him and went away. And he did that with the first one, second one, with all six. He did the same thing. He neither believed nor disbelieved. He thanked and walked away. He left it open whether maybe he'd find out something else. So then the third one, he said he went to the third one. And the third one said, in answer to the exactly same question, what is the fruit of the spiritual life? He said, he answered him, that we're all made up out of the four elements. Fire, water, earth, and air, which is quite true. And so, since we are not really a person, it doesn't matter what we do. In fact, at the at death, everything is finished anyway. Everything goes back to where it came from. So he's preaching a theory of annihilation. Finished. 
everything finished. Saint one was preaching a theory of purification just through being born and dying. It's also, of course, obviously nonsense. And the first one was preaching the theory that there's no result, no effect from causes. So with the third one he had the same thing again. He said, first of all, again it was like a mango that was being explained in terms of a breadfruit. It's not what I wanted to know. And also he said it, I wasn't satisfied. But again I didn't see anything. I just thanked him and went away. And then he said I went to the fourth one. And the fourth one, he said, gave an explanation that there are seven kinds of bodies, namely the four elements and pain, pleasure, and the soul. And all seven are divided by space. So, if one kills a person, cuts their head off from their body, one just goes through space. So there's nothing bad done. Well, obviously it's utter nonsense. But again, he gives the same explanation. He says, again, I didn't want to hear this. This is irrelevant. I'm dissatisfied. But what this actually shows us also, that some of these things are not this in those words, but we do hear teachings or read about them, which have no basis in fact where one is supposed to believe some imaginary thing. So this teacher had evidently imagined or had some meditation experience where he saw seven different bodies divided by space and now that was his theory that he was working on. Now, it didn't help that king at all. And we, you know, that thing where we say annihilation, that is that wonderful saying we have, let's be happy and make merry, we only live once. A kind of uh, a theory where we say, well, you know, it's not uncommon that people think like that. Let's just have a good time now, so after us, what do we know? So again, he was dissatisfied, obviously. Then he went to the next one. Now, the next one was Niganta Naraputta, who is the founder of the Jain sect. And the Jain sect still exists is the only one that has any um, leftover remnant of any of these teachers. The others have long been forgotten. The only way we can remember them is by looking up their names in that discourse. Um, and the Jain sect was and is bent on purification, but purification on such a material base that it doesn't also have the... Um, depth so he asked this fourth, uh, fifth one sorry and um, he told him the four restraints do no evil be self-controlled have self-realization self yeah, self-expression self-realization self-controlled and self-restraint these three self self things and then do no evil these are called the four restraints and again he said to the Buddha well it sounds alright but it wasn't what I asked about 
I wanted to know the fruits of a spiritual life. And he's telling me that we should have these restraints to do no evil, to have self-restraint, to have self-realization, but he doesn't tell me anything about what to do. He just tells us that tells me that we should purify ourselves. So again, I wasn't, there was nothing I could do with it. So I went to the last one, to the sixth one. And I asked him the same question. And this one was a quibbling. I asked him the fruits, and this one said that if you ask me whether there's a world beyond or not, I will say it's possible, but it's also not possible. If you ask me whether there's rebirth or not, I will say it's possible, but it's also not possible. If you ask me whether good and evil action have results, I will say it is possible, but it's also not possible. And I can give you exact explanations on both sides. So the king naturally was totally dissatisfied. And he said it was all irrelevant, didn't have anything to do with what he wanted to know. And it couldn't give him any peace of mind to know any of that. That's what he was after. He wanted peace of mind. So that's why he has now come to the Buddha, wants to ask him exactly the same question. What is the fruit of the spiritual life? What is the fruit of recluseship? In other words, why is the Buddha sitting there, who was a prince himself, uh, with his head shave, shaven head, and in his uh, robes, and uh, totally quiet with all these monks, what are they getting out of that? Why are they doing this? You can't see anything. There's no wealth. There's nothing there. So the Buddha said to him, again he's answering him with a return question. He says to him, uh, you have employees and slaves in your palace, don't you? The Buddha said, yes. The king said, yes, I have many. And the Buddha said, so they have to get up before you, and they have to lie down after you, and they have to please you, they have to work for you, and their mind has to think that if they do anything that you don't like, you might throw them out. And the king says, yes, that's so. So then Buddha said, so if they were to shave off their hair and put on the robes and then make up their minds that they want to lead the spiritual life and obey the precepts and become a good person, would you ask them to come back and be your slave and your employee again? Or what would you do? And the king said, no, no, I wouldn't ask them to come back. I would be delighted that they have taken such a turn in their life and I would pay reverence to them and would be very, um, try to be very helpful to them so that they could lead this spiritual life. So the Buddha said, well, that's one fruit of leading a spiritual life. And the king, of course, wasn't satisfied yet because after all, he's not a slave, he's a king. So he wants to know, you know, how it's going to affect him. So he says, um, well, is there any other? And so the Buddha said, yes, there's another. But why the Buddha starts at the very bottom of the whole thing, and it goes on and on and on, with, when we come to the end, to Nibbana, is because he wants to show in this very um, simple manner karma and its resultants. Because all these other fellows, except Niganta Buddha, were denying karma. 
they were saying there is no such thing. And this was one of the very um, prevalent situations in India then, and we have it, of course, in the West, people don't even think about such things. I mean, most people who don't meditate never think about karma and its resultants. So he wants to show in a very uh, simple way that karma has resultants, that this slave or, or laborer that he has in his palace who makes up his mind to become a spiritual person, to grow within, has immediate results. Namely, that the king is going to help him, where before the king was ordering him around. So there's an immediate resultant. He hasn't even done anything yet. He's just made up his mind. He's just determined himself to do this. And already there's a result. So, of course, it impresses the king, but... It's not enough yet to really impress him. So now what else? So then the Buddha says, all right, you've got farmers on your land, haven't you? He says, yes. And do they pay taxes to you? He says, yes. And do they have a hard time getting enough uh, um, harvest to pay their taxes? Oh, yes, they've got to work very hard. So now if one of the farmers makes up his mind, to shave his hair, put on the robes and become a spiritual person and grow in the spiritual life. Would you tell him, come back and pay taxes to you again? He says, of course not. What I would do is I would uh, be very happy for him and I would uh, pay reference to him, reverence to him and I would try and help him. So the Buddha said, see, there you are. That's the second uh, fruit of the life of a recluse. Again, he's trying to show him that there is immediate karmic resultant. And, of course, the king says, yes, that's very nice, I, I can see that, but now what else is there? And so then the Buddha starts out with a householder or a householder's son doing this, what the resultants are. And there's a whole list of things that can happen and that will happen in that life. And it starts out with moral conduct. Continuations this evening. <laughs> now, as far as that goes, um, this is sort of like the prologue to the discourse. From here on comes instructions, what to do. And we'll start with that this evening. And as I said already, it starts with the moral conduct. And that's why we also started this course with taking the precepts, because this is now the first point that is being addressed. The first point that is addressed is keeping precepts. And then, not only that, but how to enlarge them, to make it a real spiritual life. And some of that is extremely applicable to everyone, not necessarily only for monk or nun, but applicable in, in our lives, so we will see that and talk about that this evening. Before we go to lunch, and we'll say a little... Um, we'll say a little verse on food. Any questions about anything? It doesn't have to be about what I've just talked about. Anything at all? Yes. Uh, there's a reason uh, when you, you put your hand like this during the meditation. Is there a reason? Yes. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. I know exactly what you mean. Uh, no, it, it's um, it's nothing uh, esoteric about it. It's the one-pointedness of the mind which uh, is helped by the one-pointedness of the body. It's not easy to become one-pointed when you're lying flat on your back on the bed. But it's, um, so the body has to help the mind. And this is only a personal habit. That's all. <laughs> okay, anything else? The four elements, oh, for sure. It's always, always part of it. It's uh, part of the teaching. This was only sort of like a, uh, as I say, a prologue to, to show where, how this all came about. Yes, they're always part of the inside part, the elements. Uh, I had a uh, um, question about the recollections this morning. <coughs> Are they to be used just in a specific uh, time like meditation? I was thinking about the man you were talking about in Melbourne who had the cancer, and I was wondering if meditating on decay and disease and death wouldn't sap your natural fighting ability to um, overcome an illness of, or a major illness at that time? The fighting ability to overcome an illness is just what's wrong. That's exactly what's wrong. You see, the fighting ability is I'm fighting an enemy. Illness is not an enemy. It's just an expression, an expression of something. There's no enemy there. When we fight the enemy, we have dukkha because we don't want that enemy to be there, so we want to get rid of him, which is the first and second noble truth. I'm having this bad thing, whatever it happens to be, and I don't want it, I've got to get rid of it. That doesn't work. That fighting ability is something, is a myth in Western allopathic medicine. It's a total myth. But what does work, and the opposite, of course, doesn't work either, the resignation. None of this works, because one is actually, the resignation is actually wanting it, out of some reason for, because one doesn't want to be around, because things are too awful, and the other one is to get rid of it, because I don't like it, because it's too awful. It's a totally different aspect. The acceptance of it, that it is there, and then changing the mind into a peaceful mind will not um, eliminate death, but it will certainly either prolong life beyond the terminal aspect that has been said by the medicine, uh, by the um, ordinary medicine, or, and on the other hand, it will also take away all this dislike, this non-wanting, and therefore create more peace in the mind, and therefore make quality out of the time, rather than quantity. There's never any guarantee that everybody's going to survive more than what the doctor has said. But quality is far more important than quantity. So the fighting ability is not uh, um, desirable. What's desirable is acceptance, understanding, flowing with it. No, I like to compare that to trying to get a door open that's stuck. 
If you try to get a door open that's stuck and you push and you push and you push, your hand's going to hurt. But if you either can do it by oiling it and thereby getting it open without pushing or find the way around it, you won't hurt. So trying to push it, it doesn't work. It hurts. Is that clear? <laughs> so I, I, that's what he has done. I mean, that's what he teaches. I, I don't know what he has done. He didn't... I had ten minutes with him. Fifty-three people each had ten minutes. I mean, he took twenty anyway because he was very interesting. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know the whole story, everything, every detail.